Hi, everybody, and welcome to Coach's Corner. Happy almost Easter for those of you who celebrated as this podcast is going up the day before Easter Sunday. And I am really excited about this Coach's Corner. I'm interviewing Dr. Rick Hansen. And I was thrilled when I got an email from his publicist asking if I'd want to interview him on the show because he's someone whose work I've followed for a while now. And I talk about this in the episode. I actually reference him in Expectation Hangover in the mental section where I'm talking about rewiring our brain because he is an expert in the field of neuropsychology and neuroplasticity, which is all about how our brain is malleable. And And after interviewing him, I love him even more. He is just such a great example of a thought leader who embodies both science and spirituality. So you're going to get so much from this episode. Get out your notebook and make sure to get his new book, Resilient, which we're also going to talk about. I'll read more of his bio in a moment. But first, I want to thank our sponsor for this episode, which is FreshBooks. So those of you that are creative or entrepreneurs, we're in the business of turning our ideas into value for our customers or our audience. But the thing we need is time to cultivate those fresh ideas, which is exactly where FreshBooks can help. FreshBooks makes cloud accounting software for creative professionals that's so straightforward to use. You'll save hours every week and have more time to let your creativity flourish. And if that's not enough incentive, the FreshBooks platform has been rebuilt from the ground up. They've taken simplicity and speed to an entirely new level and added powerful new features. I can't cover them all right now, but sending a branded invoice in under 30 seconds and enabling online payments in two clicks are just a couple examples. There's also a new projects feature where you can invite employees or contractors to collaborate, and easily share information, files, and updates. If you're listening to this and not using FreshBooks yet, now would be the time to try. FreshBooks is offering a unrestricted 30-day free trial for all my listeners, no credit card required. 30 days, free trial. All you need to do is go to freshbooks.com slash Christine and enter over it and on with it in the how did you hear about us section. So before we dive into the interview a little bit more on Dr. Rick Hansen, he's a New York Times bestselling author of Hardwiring Happiness and Buddha's Brain. He's known for a trademark blend of neuroscience, positive psychology, and mindfulness. In his new book, Resilient, Rick presents a scientifically grounded program for developing 12 inner strengths that foster lasting happiness in a changing world. We know that's true. He shows readers how to grow and use mental resources such as grit, gratitude, compassion, and motivation to manage hardship and push through challenges in the pursuit of opportunities. And now on to my interview with Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm just honored to have you here. Like I was telling you before we started recording, I mentioned you in my last book, Expectation Hangover, on mm. the uh, on the chapter on leveraging expectation hangovers on the mental level when I talk about how we can rewire our brain. So I've been a big fan. And also like your work has helped me a lot in, mm. in my own development. So thank you. Thank I'm you for that. I'm touched by that. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, it's, it's truly my pleasure. It was such a joy to uh, get an email about you being on the show. So thank you. And the reason I got the email about you being on the show is because you have a new book coming out, which I'm so excited to read. The title is called Resilient, How to Grow an Unshakable Core of Calm, Strength, and Happiness. Why did you decide to write this book? What was the inspiration for this? Well, it's a great question, actually. And I've, I've thought about it. Um, 
So this is my fifth book, and I've been a psychologist a long time, and I've, I've worked with people as a mindfulness teacher and a business consultant and in a lot of different ways. And when I look back at what I've learned for myself uh, and also what I, what I see when I look at people, I keep coming back to kind of this old school notion of self-reliance and um, being able to draw upon what's inside ourselves to deal with the hard things in life. There's a lot about positive psychology that I love, but it includes a kind of magic carpet ride perspective sometimes on things like, oh, just do this practice, do this gratitude thing or the self-compassion mm -hmm. thing or say this mantra and whoosh, you'll be transported to happiness. And those are good practices, but they leave out the real fact that down here on planet Earth, there's a lot we have to cope with. Anxiety relationship issues, career issues, the crazy world around us, the in-laws, the, you know, the dripping faucet, the dogs barking next door. We have to deal with things. And so I, I got very interested in the fundamental how, grounded in positive neuroplasticity, neuropsychology, the fundamental how of growing greater self-confidence, greater happiness, greater self-worth inside yourself. And what the book's about essentially is how to grow, in a sense, 12 mental muscles, 12 psychological muscles, compassion, gratitude, grit, intimacy, aspiration, and so forth inside ourselves for lasting well-being in a changing world. Mm. Can you define neuropsychology? Sure. It's basically the um, science of the relationship between uh, the mind and the brain or the mind and the nervous system really broadly. And what I mean by that when I say that here is that as we're having, uh, and people listening, let's say, are having thoughts or body sensations, emotions, desires, memories, and so forth, those are being produced by your brain. And really recognizing the reality of embodiment, of getting the fact that we might be mindful of the body, but we're actually body full of mind. And really getting that what looks like rotten cauliflower inside your skull, you know, three pounds of tofu-like mm -hmm. tissue inside the coconut there, uh, that unremarkable-looking organ is constructing moment by moment by moment our experience of being alive. Mm. And when you get that, to me, it takes me to a sense of awe, but also it takes me to a sense of, all right, how can I hack the hardware? <laughs> Yeah. You know, how can we use the mind to change the brain, to change the mind for the better? And that's my main focus. So let's talk about that a little bit, about hacking yeah. the hardware, because I think a lot of people think that they are the way they are and they can't change. And they have these terrible thoughts or these worrisome thoughts or these judgments about themselves. And that's just the way they are. And that's just the way they think. So, the, but like you said, the brain is malleable. How do we do it? Right. Well, first, the bad news, um, we're very vulnerable to being changed by the worst mm. uh, to the for the worst. And um, that's the brain's so-called negativity bias. And I say it's like Velcro for the bad, but Teflon for the good. So as people think about, let's say, what happens when someone's traumatized or someone grows up in a really critical home or is bullied as a kid or or is betrayed? by a relationship partner, those experiences, those negative experiences leave lasting traces behind. People can really, I think, get that. On the other hand, um, it's also true 
that beneficial experiences that are internalized. That's a critically important point. In other words, a coaching session, let's say with you or looking out at a beautiful sunset or having a deep conversation with a friend, those experiences can actually change us for the better. And there's good research that shows that um, trainings, uh, formal trainings like meditation training or regular gratitude practice or doing forms of self-compassion or different kinds of coaching actually leave physical changes in the brain. The researchers are able to detect like measurably thicker neural tissue, more connections between regions, uh, more activity in important regions that help us stay kind of calm and happy as we deal with challenges in this life. And so the takeaway point for a person to realize is kind of goes to the famous saying, neurons that fire together, wire together. Mm -hmm. If you can keep those neurons firing together in a part of your brain that's doing something good, helping you to be strong, loving, and happy, let's say, well, those neurons are going to tend to start wiring together. Uh, the, the part of the brain that you're stimulating will become strengthened as a result, you know, I- including with lasting physical changes left behind, which is a wonderful thing to, to know about. And it's a great opportunity because then you can kind of guide yourself to a, a, a durable change of heart and change of mind over time by changing your brain for the better. Mm. So one of the things that I do a lot on the show with people and that I do with clients and at my retreats is have them go back to memories and let their younger self speak and actually speak mm. to that younger part. Yeah. What's going on in the brain? And, and it works. It's worked mm-hmm. so much for me in my own life and healing things. And I see it work for people that I work with. What's happening in the brain that makes that so effective? It's such an interesting question. I mean, I, I have a lot of background uh, before I became a therapist in doing the kind of things that you're talking about. And I've wondered about that a lot myself. And the truth is, neuroscience is a baby science. So even though uh, what scientists are discovering kind of at the cellular and molecular level um, still hasn't yet uh, given us tools to answer exactly the kind of question you're raising. Mm-hmm. That said, um, the sense of the younger self, especially the f- the physical and emotional sense of it, is grounded in um, sort of memory systems that are related to what you've you know the term the limbic system, the part of the brain mm-hmm. that's very involved in emotion and motivation. And so deep down, kind of in the layers of the brain, uh, sort of in the middle of the brain, those systems, which include things like the hippocampus and the amygdala. Uh, retain uh, uh, in some way, in some sense, the emotional residues of what it was like for a person to be a little child, a little kid. And um, so then what happens when a person is visualizing that or imagining that, say, on a retreat, is that those uh, circuits, let's call them that, in the brain get re-stimulated. And that brings up kind of the body memory and the sense of being that young child. And then, interestingly, a different part of the brain that's more um, adult, let's say, and also has evolved more recently right behind the forehead, the prefrontal cortical cortical regions uh, are interacting with those limbic regions that uh, are very involved with um, the sense of being a young child. So you have this dialogue going back and forth. 
And what that supports is a greater integration. Mm. The more adult and uh, in terms of evolutionary time, uh, over the 600 million year, literally, evolution of the nervous system, the more adult and the more uh, recent portions of the brain are bringing perspective and uh, hopefully some sense of wisdom uh, to those younger layers, including, for example, like in my case, it was really uh, helpful to me to realize uh in my 30s, I think, if not later, that my mom had been depressed while I was growing up, uh, especially at key times, uh, especially after my, um, I think, brother was born. And uh, that really helped me, you know, to bring that kind of adult perspective to the little boy layers deep down inside me. But flip the other way to finish, those younger layers, uh, the child layers, have a lot of wisdom and a lot of profundity in them. They have a, in Zen, they say, beginner's mind, Zen mind. There's a kind of beginner's mind of freshness and innocence in those deeper layers. And they're able to bring that sense of innocence uh, and um, sweetness, really, uh, and emotion to the kind of more, quote unquote, rational uh, regions of the brain uh, that are behind the, the, the forehead. So it's in that dialogue back and forth. That there's an opportunity for a greater integration mm-hmm. and also new kind of perspectives uh, as they interact with each other. Thank you for that. Um, it, I I knew it worked. <laughs> it's uh, nice, it's nice right. to have an, an idea really of, of why it works. Uh, just yeah. from the, you know, the, the science nerd in me loves that. So staying on that, because I think, um, you know, for a lot of people listening to the show and people have been listening for a while, they've seen me do this with people. So having the the kind of explanation of why it works, hopefully mm-hmm. will inspire them to maybe do that inner work with themselves. The other thing I wanted to ask about just in terms of the brain is um, in relation to trauma. Mm-hmm. A lot of listeners have had trauma in their life, everything yeah. from abuse to just being bullied you know, and we can't compare our trauma to another person's trauma. What's traumatic for us is traumatic for us. And so their amygdala fires up quite a bit and they find themselves in that fight or flight response quite a bit. And even though they know their rational current day self knows they're safe, there's a part of them, the part of their brain that doesn't think so. And all alarms are going off. Can you break that down a little bit for us and maybe give some tips on how people can work with their brain to create a different response in their body so they don't go into fight or flight. I hope that question made sense. (laughs) Oh, it's a profound, important question. And um, well, let's see a couple of things here. So one, one thing to appreciate is uh, how quickly, as I said earlier, we learn. And when I use the word learn, I don't mean memorizing the multiplication tables. I mean, we get changed. Uh, our sense of self gets changed. We we internalize emotions. We become more inclined in one direction or another in terms of our intentions and our outlook. That's the kind of learning that I'm talking about, the, the social emotional learning that really matters. Well, we are very vulnerable to learning from painful, stressful, negative experiences. It's that Velcro for the bad, Teflon for the good thing. So it's under... so. First, we're designed to be changed by our experiences. Second, especially negative experiences. Third, particularly negative experiences in childhood. So I see a lot of people who uh, feel guilty about still being affected 
by what happened to them in childhood or in adulthood, you know, even recently. They're just, they feel guilty about it. Why haven't I gotten over this? Well, you're designed to not get over it because that was a great way to keep our ancestors alive back in the Stone Age and even before that. Mother Nature doesn't care about quality of life. She only cares about her little critters, you know, living to see the sunrise and passing on genes that pass on genes. So it's normal to be really affected by these things. And it's not your fault. Mm-hmm. Second, it's very powerful to realize that even ordinary experiences of everyday frazzled or feeling hurt or exasperated or worried about getting everything down on time or feeling pulled in 17 different directions or multitasking, raising family, juggling a job or back and forth, uh, or you're just kind of worried about maybe a health scare or you don't know what thing, where things are going, whatever it might be, those experiences activate the same hormonal machinery that evolved to help our ancestors get away from saber-toothed tigers. And when we are irritated or worried or frustrated, cortisol is released. It goes up into the brain and it has one-two punch there, which very much relates to your question and trauma. In the brain, cortisol sensitizes the alarm bell of the brain, the amygdala. These are two little parts of the brain. There are actually two of them. They're about the size of an almond, about the shape as well. And they are designed to register what's pleasant and enjoyable, but they're especially designed to register what feels unpleasant or alarming. And so uh, cortisol up in the brain makes the alarm bell ring more readily and more loudly. Great. Thanks, Mother Nature. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, the uh, cortisol that comes from feeling stressed and frazzled uh, weakens and eventually kills neurons in the hippocampus. There are two of them as well. It looks like a little seahorse uh, next to the amygdala. And um, the hippocampus is important because it puts things in perspective. My boss looks like my mother, talks like my mother, but is not my mother. Mm. That was then. This is now. Hippocampus helps us do that. And also the hippocampus inhibits the amygdala. It calms it down and tells it to chill out. And the hippocampus last um, tells the hypothalamus, a nearby part of the brain, to quit calling for stress hormones Mm. enough already. Well, this creates a, this one-two punch creates a vicious cycle. Stress today uh, makes us more sensitive, more vulnerable to negative emotions and different kinds of stresses tomorrow, which then releases just a little more cortisol making us even more vulnerable the day after that. And one of the major consequences of trauma um, or, you know, a lot of micro traumas accumulate to be a macro trauma. One of the consequences of trauma is this sensitization for a person uh, over time. So to undo it, you want the good news now? Well, can you talk? Yeah, but I, I, that, what you just said is like, incredibly profound (laughs) Uh, uh, that if you've had it once, you tend to kind of desensitize to it. Can you expand on that a little bit? You mean you get more sensitive to it? Well, what, what I heard you say is that if you have had trauma in your past, then, then mm-hmm. there's two things. You become even more and more sensitive to it. Or is it possible that also because you've had it in your past, you tend to sort of just attract more and more and more because you're sort of wired for it? Well, that's very interesting. Uh, you know, there's a slippery slope there to blaming the victim and stuff like that. Right. I know that's not what you mean, um, but you're totally right. What starts to happen is that uh, people do become first, as you said, more sensitive 
Uh, and you know what is sort of, let's say, on the zero to 10 scale of somebody being a jerk, on the jerk scale, let's say, okay, there are three. But it feels like an eight because yeah. it just <laughs> lands hard on a very, you know, uh, sensitized, prickly, understandably designed to be prickly nervous system. The other thing is you're totally right as well. You know, Freud had this uh, um, phrase. He called it the repetition compulsion. In other words, we are drawn to what is familiar, even if it's awful. Yeah. Better the devil you know than the devil you yeah. don't. And really, of course, steering clear of the blaming the victim thing, it is true that people tend to repeat paradigms or patterns of relationship, uh, self and other, self and world, that they acquired when they were younger, especially the patterns of relationship that were acquired with negative emotion. Yeah. Because we're designed to learn, especially from those experiences that have negative emotion along with them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you said, you know, it's not about blaming the victim because sure. neither one of us are coming from that place. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we really look on this show at everything from spiritual psychology viewpoint. So hmm. I, I tend to, to believe that we draw these experiences to us because on the soul level, we so want to heal it. Like we yeah. so want to heal it. And sometimes we'll ignore it until it's like the sixth or seventh time or the second yeah. time or the third time that it happens. And so, yeah. yes, we're drawn to the familiar and we're also drawn to those experiences until we choose to really look at it and to go and do the inner work and to heal it. Um, and I, I think also, that's really true. And yeah. if I could just build on what you yeah. said there, um, and I, I have a very... I have a very important spiritual practice. Important to me is what I mean to say. And so I, I relate to what you're saying. Uh, another way it shows up that, you know, is consistent with what you're saying is that I see people who are on a quest. They want to get what was missing when they were young and they and they want to repair what was damaged or broken even mm -hmm. uh, when they were young. What that does, though unconsciously is it sets them in motion for the kind of person who injured them when they were young or the kind of person who didn't give them what they needed when they were young. Yep. It's a kind of quest again and again and again, finally, please, to get blood from that stone. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And it's so poignant. I think of it as heroic and poignant and touching and tragic yep. and doomed. And I can speak from some experience there. And one of the great wake ups, wake ups, uh, as you say, is to recognize the nature of the quest and to start looking for other people or other situations or, or being yourself in other ways in relationships that are actually going to enable you to get the food, the spiritual food, even that your heart really longs for. Exactly. Exactly. And oh, we've had so many episodes about that. There was one just a few weeks ago about getting over daddy issues. <laughs> and it was yeah. the story of the woman who was dating the same person with a different face over and over and over again, all who were like her dad. So that's a big theme on the show. Um, I also want to bookmark, we've gone on a tangent here. I'll get you back to the answer of the original question, sure. but also want to bookmark what you said, you know, someone who is acting like a jerk at a three is like mm. an eight to someone who's had trauma. This is so important for those of you listening who may not have had trauma, but are in relationship with someone who has a traumatic background, why you do something and you don't think it's a big deal, but to them, it's like a really big deal. Mm. Understand and, and have compassion. Of course, you know, it's up to us all to do our own work, 
but have compassion that what to you may be a three might register as an eight to someone who has a traumatic experience in their background who, or who just went through a traumatic experience. So I just thought that was important to point out. Okay, now I'll let you finish the answer sure. to the question. Well, Christine, first off, uh, yeah, I, that's deeply wise what you just said right there. And I really appreciate you saying it. It's good for people to know. Mm -hmm. uh, so the question then is sort of how to rehab your brain, how to yes. rehab a traumatized brain, to say it a certain way. And there, there's a lot about that. But if I could, I could just, I can offer a, a, like some real major headlines. All right. One headline is exercise. Physical activity promotes the growth and survival of new baby neurons in your hippocampus. So if you've had a hippocampus that has been sort of eaten away at by stress hormones related to painful, even traumatic life experiences, one of the best ways you can help your hippocampus is through physical activity. It doesn't mean you need to become a triathlete, uh, walking, uh, lifting weights, uh, yoga, just moving, uh, walking your dog. That's a really important way to promote what's called neurogenesis, the birth of new baby neurons in your hippocampus. That's one headline. Mm -hmm. Second major headline, positive emotion. Positive emotion that's authentic uh, and typically mild. A little bit of gratitude here, sense of accomplishment there. Looking at yourself in the mirror in the morning and go, all right, not too bad. And then out the door, uh, feeling close to somebody, your cat crawls in your lap, you're, you're meditating, maybe you have a sense of the, of the divine in prayer. Maybe there's something happening there for you as well. Whatever it might be, positive emotion rehabs the brain, does a lot of really good things to the brain. It protects the brain and your body altogether from the impacts of negative emotions, including on your immune system and in your brain. Emotionally positive experiences promote the growth of new connections, literally, between neurons so that you can actually gain more from the learning experiences you're having. In other words, if you're, say, involved in coaching or you're doing personal growth practices on your own or with other people of one kind or another, if you want to, if you want to help them really land and establish themselves in you and make a difference that lasts from the inside out, you know, change that sticks, if you want to do that, a great way to do that, to promote that neurologically is to uh, look for opportunities many times a day, typically brief moments, a breath or two or three, to have and kind of marinate in emotionally positive experiences. That's really important as well. And then a third big headline is to feel um, connected to others. Uh, we're very social primates, the most social species on the planet, especially in terms of our capabilities and our experiences, and being with other people who support you, healthy relationships, are a primal signal of safety. And so being with others and uh, feeling befriended and, and feeling close and also feeling caring yourself um, is very soothing to that scared little monkey deep down inside us that was so mis that was mistreated and really hurt and is and is very cautious and um, scared still. Mm -hmm. Being with others in healthy, good ways uh, and internalizing these experiences of other people is a way to uh, internalize soothing and reassurance for those younger, scared layers inside you. So then you can step out into the world with more confidence. Oh, all such, such good stuff. And it really, this is another thing we talk about on the show. It's, the, it's becoming an inner parent to ourselves. 
really being yeah. that, that inner parent, that parent we didn't have. And we talk a lot about the show that our parents did the best they could, even if we don't think they did. <laughs> mm-hmm. For them, it was their best. And when we can really look at it as, yeah, I think there's so much freedom in the question of what am I learning versus why did this happen to me? Because we yeah. never really know why. We're never going to know exactly, but we can really extract the learning from it. And I know it has been my most traumatic, challenging events. I mean, this is why I wrote Expectation Hangover, because it has been those events that have been the catalyst for my deepest healing and eventually mm-hmm. my my greatest joys. So, yeah. and um, just the confirmation that, you know, we can actually change our brain because I, I believe that. I, I don't know if you know this, but I was put on Prozac when I was 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. and was on mm-hmm. it until I was 30. And so mm-hmm. really, really believed, you know, was told my whole life, you have a chemical imbalance and you need these and da, 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 da. And I, you know, it took me years to get off of them, but a big part of it was, was the neuroplasticity part. And that's when I found your work mm-hmm. of, wait, this, this guy's telling me I can rewire my brain. <laughs> because you I, totally can. Yeah. Because yeah. I was told, no, you're hardwired this way, uh, but you're right. Just like you can't go to the gym once and expect to lose 20 pounds. Mm-hmm. This does take, it does take time and, um, it does take being resilient, which brings me to my next question. Do you mind if I just yeah. drop something in there Absolutely. though? A little bit of geek, speaking of your, in, to your inner science geek. Uh, so we, for example, relationships, right? How does it actually help heal us? Well, what's interesting is that going back to the amygdala, right? The alarm bell of the brain, it has receptors in it, little molecular docking stations to receive neurotransmitters of different kinds. And these little docking stations are shaped so that only certain sorts, kinds of molecules can land in them and activate them. All right. The amygdala, the alarm bell of the brain, two of them, has docking stations for the oxytocin neurotransmitter, mm. which is, as you know, which is related to social experiences, including very luscious moments of bonding, let's say with a baby, or more generally hugging someone or feeling close to someone or imagining someone that you want to talk with. Oxytocin is very involved in that. And the effect of of activating with oxytocin those receptors on the amygdala is to inhibit the amygdala, is to calm it down. This means that as we cultivate social experiences, we get more activity at the oxytocin receptors in the amygdala, which calms down that panicky alarm, uh, vigilance, nervous, anxious response that's understandable for people who are traumatized and people in general. And also, as we increase uh, oxytocin activity related to increasing our sense of compassion, mm. kindness, friendship, and love, that actually sensitizes those receptors and builds new receptors, which also helps kind of calm and soothe the amygdala. We'll still recognize red lights in life and we'll still uh, tune into people who are not good for us uh, and you know get, the, get a bad vibe and move away from them. But we'll be able to do it, getting to your point here about resilience, on the basis much more of a kind of resilient sense of calm capability rather than feeling fragile and or, and brittle and reactive. Mm, I love Isn't that. Isn't that neat so how the cool. oxytocin receptor thing works? Yeah, yeah, it's really great. Yeah, and I think when you have an understanding of that, it just makes it so much easier to picture it. You know, and you can mm-hmm. actually see your thoughts and see your decisions going to different parts of the brain. That was a big part of me was visualization, was actually seeing the chemicals in my brain shifting. Mm-hmm. Um, it made a big difference. So 
Oh, okay, such good stuff. Um, I could get, geek out on this stuff all day, uh, but ah. I definitely I want to talk a little bit more about your new book. You talk about these twelve inner strengths mm-hmm. that we can develop that will make us more resilient. And I'd love to hear because we can all assume what resilient means. Mm. But why did you choose that word? Yeah, um, I chose it because uh, to me it's the essence of lasting well-being. In other words. It's easy to be happy when you're getting a mani-pedi, right? I, although I got to tell you, I admit it. I've never had one. Oh, right? I man, imagine, you got to treat I yourself. Imagine, right? <laughs> I know I should do it. I should do it. I, I'm broad-minded. I, I'm, uh, I'm an older guy, but I really got to do it. Okay, mani-pedi. <laughs> but it's easy to, everybody loves you. You're getting nothing but five-star book ratings on Amazon. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? It's easy to be happy then. Okay, fine. But what about when... You don't feel good in your body mm-hmm. or it's the end of a really long day, but you got to keep going or you've got to push through some kind of conflict with somebody. So to me, uh, resilience is what enables us to have lasting well-being as the waves of life keep coming at us. And one of the things that uh, I saw my own background in spirituality probably loads fairly heavily on Buddhism. And one of the central insights or observations of the Buddha is what's in front of our nose, which is that our experiences are constantly changing and you can't hold on to them. So you need to grow resources inside yourself to deal with the next wave that's coming. Now that's resilience in its essence. Resilience is a course for surviving the worst day of your life, for sure. Getting through it, enduring it, still being here and starting to recover from it. But resilience is more than that. It's not just about surviving the worst day of your life. It's about thriving, really, every day of your life. And so that's that's the essence of resilience. And people can feel it inside themselves. Yeah. It is that unshaken core in that around the edges, you could be frazzled. I get frazzled. I've been doing this a long time. Um, you know, you might get be frazzled. There might be some kind of worry or irritation around the edges. But in your core, in the core of your being, that's what we're trying to build up here. There's a sense of mm. capability mm. and stability. That's the calm part. And well-being, kind of a happiness and a warm-heartedness that connects you with other people. Mm. Uh, I think about this line from the early teachings of uh, in Buddhism, in which the, the Buddha is describing his own kind of run-up to enlightenment. And he said, as he got closer and closer, um, painful racking feelings arose in my mind, but they did not invade my mind and remain. That's the key distinction. It's not, I mean, we're going to feel all kinds of things, but do they invade us and occupy us and remain? That's the key distinction. I love that. I love that. And I love to, earlier you talked about how there's no quick fixes and this whole positive psychology all the time. It's not human. It's not human. And it's normal for us to be sad if someone breaks our heart or get a little stressed out in traffic sometimes, but it's, it's how we react to that. And if I, I love this definition of resilient because it doesn't mean that nothing affects us. It doesn't right. mean that we're superhuman. It just means that even in the spite of that, there's this calm and this peace inside and we can be resilient too in the way we choose to respond to things. Yeah. Can I ask a quick question? Have you ever sailed? Um, I ha- I've been on a sailboat, but never yeah. done it myself. Okay. I've done it a little bit. Uh, I know just enough to get into trouble. And I (laughs) I went sailing one time and I capsized the boat. I Mm. flipped it over because it did not have a keel. 
And the person who was teaching me to sail just wasn't paying attention for a moment. I did something dumb. Whoops. Next thing you know, the boat is upside down and we're bobbing up and down in the Pacific Ocean. Mm. Not a good moment. So a lot of lesson from it. And I think of uh, in our personal sailboat as we go out in the ocean of life and the storms sometimes come, uh, our keel enables us to manage the currents and the winds without tipping over. And because we have a keel, uh, we start developing more confidence about daring greatly, as Brene Brown puts it, and going out into the deep, dark blue. And the inner resources we acquire inside ourselves, the inner strengths, the capabilities, the insights, the know-how, the attitudes, um, the the body sensations inside ourselves, um, those inner resources as we acquire them are like deepening the keel in our personal sailboat. Mm -hmm. And then we can uh, live life more courageously uh, and skillfully. Mm, I love that. I love that. So what are some of the 12 inner strengths that we can develop? Yeah. Yeah. I think the very first one, uh, you know, you have to start somewhere. I started with compassion, especially self-compassion, because if you're not on your own side, you're not going to be learning or growing uh, from there. Uh, One of the things that um, to me is present in in your story when you talk about it is how in you was a kind of moxie that was on your own side, um, was a advocate for yourself inside you rather than what so many people have inside themselves, which is a kind of brutal inner critic that's tearing them down rather than building them up. So one of the very first steps in any kind of path of healing or growing is to uh, establish inside yourself a sense of being on your own side, being for yourself with compassion for yourself. And as much research shows now, increasingly, self-compassion makes you stronger, doesn't make you weaker. It actually helps people, yeah, uh, pursue their dreams because they're more willing to take chances. It also helps people recover faster. People going out on combat tours uh, or dealing with super stressful situations who are less likely to get PTSD tend to have more self-compassion, more sense of meaning, um, uh, in what they do. So that's one of the very first strengths, I think. And I'll tell you another one that really, uh, has stood up for me more and more is courage, especially interpersonal courage. It's funny. I've done a ton of rock climbing, a lot of wilderness activities, and I've been in a lot of business situations and I've known people who were very brave, physically in uh, very life and death situations, or let's say in business, were very strong and assertive and they could lead that board meeting and the rest of that. But when it came to really opening up to another person or speaking from their heart, they didn't have much courage at all. So there's a whole chapter in the book that's about interpersonal courage and uh, in ways that um, are are healthy and skillful rather than just blasting other people. I don't think of that as interpersonal courage, but being able to sustain and stay in contact and feel entitled in a healthy way to your own point of view uh, and finding that sweet spot in which I, I call it the strong heart because it's it's pretty straightforward to be assertive. It's pretty straightforward to be loving, but to be both. Mm-hmm. To be loving while being assertive, to be mm-hmm. assertive while being loving, that's not so easy to put those two together. And yeah. so uh, that's the strong heart. And that's one of the other chapters in the book. One of my first teachers, Mona Miller, she was my first, um, she called herself a coach, but she, that's like an yeah. understatement of who she was. Um, 
And I just say was because she transitioned, but she still is to me. And she would always talk about how truth and love go together. And what you just said reminded me of that. Love is not not telling the truth. You know, love can sometimes be those those conversations that require a little more courage, that require a little more vulnerability, that require speaking our truth to someone. And that always yeah. stuck with me. That truth, there's no there's no love without truth or truth without love. Um, yeah. And and I try to bring those into all my relationships and my relationship with myself. Um, one of the other uh, keys or strengths, because I have a kind of a sneak peek into the book, you mentioned motivation. And mm-hmm. before I ask you about that, because I haven't read the book yet, so I don't know what you've said. One, we talk a lot on the show too about the difference between motivation and inspiration, mm-hmm. and our come from in motivation and an expectation hangover. I read about these things called compensatory strategies the way we compensate for where we feel less than and how those things often motivate us. Like, so for yeah. example, for me, I was a real insecure kid. And so mm-hmm. I compensated by being an overachiever. So yeah. I was incredibly motivated to achieve, but my come from was from a wound. It was mm-hmm. a hurt. So mm-hmm. I'd love to hear how you talk about motivation and whether you think our come from is important. Mm. If I follow you right, first, I got to tell you, and I'm a wise speech, right speech kind of person, you are very wise. And second, yeah, really. Uh, and, uh, and second, if I get you right, uh, you're really talking about what's the underlying uh, reason or rationale for the motivation? Does it come from yes. a sense of deficit or let's say wound inside, or does it come from a sense of fullness already? Correct. Right? Yes. Or, yeah. I think that's wonderfully said, and it reminds me, as, as you all know, the system, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and the lower needs are described as deficit needs. Something is missing. Safety is missing. Yeah. Connection is missing. Feeling important or, or appreciated is missing. And then self-actualization comes from a sense of fullness already. You're already actualized, and you're continuing to actualize yourself, kind of like that. Right. And so... Uh, I'll say two things about that. Uh, one is I have this uh, saying to myself, aspiration without attachment. Mm-hmm. And when you recognize that we evolved for a world that's very different from the one in which we live, you know, we have a hunter gatherer stone age brain inside us now in a high tech 21st century. <laughs> and the result is that we have a brain that is pretty primitive. And for example, is designed to attach to and get addicted to and driven about various goals. So it's important to be aware of that dynamic in which we just get insistent or pressured inside, uh, stressed inside, gotta have it, gotta mm-hmm, have it. Mm-hmm. And realize one, that's creating a lot of wear and tear on your body. Yeah. That's wearing down your body and exposing you to health risks, especially as you get older, or if you do things that challenge your body, like bear and rear a child, have a baby and raise that kid. So um, it's important to realize that you can dream big dreams and you can go for it without stressing about it. And I've had a number of experiences that were important to me in which I, I really learned what it felt like inside to uh, have a stretch goal to have a big dream and to totally go for it with courage and a whole heart and diligent res- resolution and all the rest of that while 
helping myself continuously be at peace with whatever the results may be. Mm. And that's a very, that's an important inner strength, right? To develop over time. And uh, one of the ways to to me that it really helps with that is to one recognize when you're getting pressured inside when when you're kind of inside your own mind insisting on a certain result to go to your word wonderful word expectations mm-hmm. um, there's a line if you don't want to get disappointed don't get appointed to an outcome <laughs> yeah. in the first place yeah. inside your own mind right yeah and so that's really useful to notice when you're getting all pressured and insistent about it inside yourself. And the other thing that's really useful to appreciate is what it feels like to be lived by a purpose mm-hmm. rather than scratching and clawing your way up the mountain to feel lifted mm-hmm. and carried along by a current, you know, lived by love, lived by generosity, lived by the actualization of all your capabilities uh, which is your right to to do as an individual. And it's going to be probably your greatest service to the world. Mm-hmm. And to finish, it feels totally different. It feels totally different to be lifted along by some aspirational, inspirational purpose rather than kind of top down mm-hmm. flogging the horse of your body rawr, rawr, yeah. rawr, to keep on going towards some goal. I compare it to the difference between someone coming up behind you and shoving you and pushing you versus standing in front of you and extending their arms and pulling you toward them. Both create movement, but they feel, they feel really different. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's a wonderful way to put it. Uh, So a question for you, maybe one that you've not been asked, but I think could help a lot of our listeners because so many are um, in personal development and on a quest and out there seeing therapists or coaches or psychologists how would you, just like there are not great experiences with doctors, not great experience with certain airlines, not great experiences with restaurants. People have had not great experiences with psychologists or therapists. How do you know when you're seeing a good psychologist or therapist? What are the things that someone should be looking for in their sessions and in their progress mm-hmm. versus knowing, you know, maybe this isn't the right fit and I need to look elsewhere. That's great. And would you generalize that to, um, experiences with coaches? Let's, let's talk about psychologists and therapists. Let's, let's well, actually answer however you think could be useful. Yeah. Um, well, for one, I'm, I applaud your bravery in asking me that question. And I, I think it's a really important question. And, um, I have been in situations in which I went to see a therapist that were not good situations. And on the other hand, I've been in situations in which I've seen a therapist that were. I've yes. also been with, let's say, coaches or people more generally in human potential or uh, mindfulness training or spiritual training that, that were good or not so good. And to go to your point earlier about people growing up in less than healthy environments, and I include myself in that way, uh, people who grow up uh, especially if they are routinely neglected or um, actively abused in emotional ways or physical or sexual ways, even by other people, sometimes it's hard for them to know kind of like what is healthy touch mm-hmm. or what is a healthy interaction mm-hmm. or what is a person who uh, is really on my side, distinct from a person who's not. So it's hard to tell sometimes. So I think it's critically important to to reclaim for yourself if you haven't already your internal comfort with recognizing the truth for yourself. 
Mm. And that might, especially in relationships that are high intensity, and it may seem so obvious, like, duh, of course I recognize the truth. And yet many, many people uh, suppress the recognition of the actual truth of a less than good relationship. And so helping yourself feel entitled to see your truth and then becoming increasingly comfortable uh, telling somebody else, at least, about what the truth is, uh, is a very important step toward becoming increasingly comfortable with as appropriate and safe, only when it's safe for you, truly, to speak your truth out loud to the other person involved. So that would be the first thing I would say, and to tune into what is my actual truth here. Yeah. Second, uh, do you feel larger or smaller after you finish with that person? Mm, I love do you that feel question. Yep. Do you feel lifted up or do you feel kind of weighed down? When you leave the interaction, I, I notice this for myself. If I leave an interaction with somebody, even out, even more generally, uh, not in a, let's say, formal therapeutic or coaching kind of environment, um, if I leave that person and I walk away and I start second guessing myself and I, I feel like I, or I, I feel like I need to impress them or I want to prove something uh, related to the interaction I just had. All right, bro, that is yeah. a yellow light flashing at a minimum. Right. So that's that's the second thing I would say, you know, do you feel do you feel lifted up or weighed down? Do you feel larger or smaller after the interaction? And then another one is, do you actually feel that they are willing to truly receive you? I've known a number of people in the human potential and therapeutic world who do kind of pro forma empathy. (laughs) 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 They kind of phone in compassion Mm -hmm. and they could, but, but meanwhile, they actually couldn't be bothered to be moved by me or moved by the person sitting in front of them. And I want to feel that I'm with someone who is willing to actually register me, including someone and, and to digress slightly, but it's relevant uh, so I've created, I've done a lot of audio programs in my own career, done them for companies that do that sort of thing, like Sounds True. And I remember the very first one I ever did, I was like, you know, I grew up quite insecure as a kid. And uh, I was, you know, in a new challenge as an adult, even I was feeling a little nervous, like, is this any good? And uh, this grizzled audio producer, just seen them all, the Dalai Lama, Deepak Chopra, Tarbrock, just had seen all the the, the big the big mm-hmm. ones. Um, I said, no, Rick, it, it was good. And then he paused and he said, you know, uh, what I've seen is that teachers fall into two categories, knowers and learners. Mm. And Rick, you're a learner. You'll be okay. Mm. Wow. That's so landed. Mm-hmm. And so when we're with a coach or a guide or a therapist, the question is, do we feel like we're with someone who has got to give us the right answer? or has this kind of formula they're going to lay on us? Or do we feel like they're engaged in an active, mutual learning process with us, which includes necessarily that they're willing to receive us, they're willing to be open enough to let us land and to um, mobilize a response to us inside themselves that is authentic and fresh and not formulaic or stock. So that would be another thing to say. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much. And I think, I think the last thing is just trust your intuition, right? If you, if you don't feel like you're making progress. <laughs> well, that's if, the other thing. Yeah. I, I'm looking for pretty fast results and in proportion to what the issue is, right? Uh, I've had people uh, 
you know, different settings, both as a therapist or also I'm, let's say I'm doing a radio show or something or something. Somebody calls in and says, oh, I've had this horrendous history, da, 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 da. In 30 seconds, can you tell me what to do? And, well, we got to do some work here. Uh, on the other hand, you know, if you don't feel like there's a, a clear plan for what your issue is yeah. that makes sense to you. And if you don't feel like what the person is doing is actually consistent with that plan and you're making progress with it, uh, I would then surface that uh, to talk with the person uh, unless you just know in your heart that this one's dead on arrival and, you know, this dog is not really going to hunt and you want to move on to something else. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of people that do resonate and are good fits, you're definitely one of them. <laughs> I, there's so much that you talked about that I was like, yes, 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 yes. And, and I just, I love that you're a learner and you're a teacher. So thank you so much for sharing everything that you shared with us. And please tell people where they can go get the new book, Resilient, and where they can connect more with you. Oh, well, it's definitely been a pleasure to talk with you, Christine, and you are a learner yourself. So I, you know, I grew up in LA and um, uh, you're in San Diego now, I think. Uh, There was back in the 70s, this guy named Reverend Ike, and he was sort of a legend in the self-help community at the time. And he would do this practice with people. You may have done it where he would have people just mill around a room, hundreds of people, and they would come up to someone they probably didn't know and say, look at the person and feel something and then mm-hmm. say the presence of something mm-hmm. in me recognizes the presence of something in you. Mm-hmm. Like the presence of love in me recognizes the presence of love in you. And I would have to say here, the presence of learning and delight in learning in me recognizes the presence of delight in learning in you. Oh, I have the biggest smile on my face. Thank you. Oh, that's good. It's Thank well you. deserved. Uh, <laughs> My pleasure, really. Well, people can uh, just track me. Go to my website, rickhanson.net, rickhanson.net. There you can see tons and tons of freely offered resources of various kinds you're welcome to use on your own. Also, you can see there information about the book, Resilient, as well as the online experiential program, The Foundations of Wellbeing, Mm. that the book came from. And that's a really neat program for people to check out. It's online. You can do it at your own pace. It takes about an hour a week for a year if you want to do it in that way, a year of personal transformation. It's very experiential. Wrapped around it is tons of science. You can check out if you like. Uh, it's totally from the heart, very practical. So that's the experiential uh, Foundations of Wellbeing program that the book Resilient came from. And also you can see many other good resources on my site, rickhanson.net. Yeah. There's all kinds of good stuff about your brain. It looks like there's some podcast episodes. There's blogs, there's your Ted talk. Yeah. So we'll link that up in the show notes. I'll link the Amazon link for the book up in the show notes. And thank you so much, Rick. Thank you for being one of my teachers. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing such important information for us about our brain and our spirit. And that's really what I love about your approach and your mission in the world is that you combine science and spirituality. Thank you. To me, that is so valuable and I'm so grateful for that. So thank you for the work that you're doing. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Before I sign off, just want to give you some useful car tips you might not be aware of, like a coffee filter and a little bit of olive oil can clean your interior, which I'm going to do. I just got a new car and I ate seaweed in it. (laughs) because I love seaweed. 
and it has little oil and salt on it. And I got it all over my seat, my brand new car. So I'm going to try that one. The other thing is removing excess weight from your car will improve gas mileage. Not doing too well on that because I have suitcases in my car. And you can place your key fob to your chin to increase its range. It's a weird one, right? Well, here's another tip you might not know about. True car also helps people get used cars. That's right. TrueCar isn't just for buying new cars. With their certified dealer network and nationwide inventory of nearly 1 million used cars, you'll enjoy real pricing on actual inventory and a simpler buying experience whether you buy new or used. And with TrueCar, users can see what others paid so they know they're getting a good deal before they're buying. They're also more likely to enjoy a faster buying experience by connecting with a TrueCar certified dealer. So when you're ready to buy a new or used car, check out TrueCar and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Hey guys, this is Sheena Shea from Vanderpump Rules, and I want to invite you to the party I'm throwing every week, my new podcast, Shenanigans. I'm going to be getting into some crazy conversations with friends like my first guest, Ariana Maddox. We're cranking it up to 11, playing games, telling juicy stories, and holding nothing back as we get into some Sheena-level nanigans. That's why it's called Shenanigans, duh. So download new episodes every Tuesday starting March 6th on the Podcast One app at podcastone.com. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts.